Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. Before we get started with this week's show, first off, let me take this opportunity to welcome back the regular listeners, and if this is your first time listening to the show, I hope you enjoy this episode and decide to subscribe to the show. And today's guest, I've got Alex Awumi. He's a professional basketball player and the author of Gaddafi's Point Guard. So thanks again, Alex, for coming on the show. How you doing? Thanks for having me, James. Uh, so we touched upon it a little bit off air. Uh, can you describe to the listeners how you got into basketball in the first place? Well, you know, when I was a kid, um, you know, I born and raised in Nigeria. Uh, my dad always used to go to the States and uh, bring over these VHS tapes of these vintage basketball players, you know, Earl Monroe, Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, uh, things like that. And uh, first, my brothers took a liking to it, and uh, I always said that you know whatever my brothers did, I would do. You know, if they played golf, if they were pilots, I would do the same thing. Um, but they, their love was basketball. They took a liking to it, and they brought me to it. And um, that's just how it got started. You know, I was just following their lead, and I ended up falling in love with it. Uh, took it real serious as I got older, around age nine, ten, eleven. I knew I could actually you know be really good at this because my drive. Okay, and progressing from obviously high school, where where did you go to college to to play basketball? After I uh, left high school, um, I I was also a American football player, a very good one. So I went to Georgetown to play two sports, basketball and football. Um, I was there for almost a year and a half, and then I left, and I ended up going to. I ended up finishing at a school called Alcorn State University in Mississippi uh, for my last two years in college, and um, you know it was a it was a it was a rough road for me, but it was, uh, I would do it all over again to be honest with you, because I met a lot of great people along the way. I learned a lot, uh, but you know even when I was in college, I knew for a fact that I wanted to do this thing professionally. Um, it wasn't a doubt about that. I worked hard at it. You know I was also a good student. I knew I needed my academics. You know past basketball. Um, and that was important to me also. But as far as professionally, I knew that I wanted to play for a long time if I could take care of my body and study the game and work hard. And you, you say you were a good student and having basketball at the same time. <laughs> Can you explain to the listeners how that system works in the U.S. in terms of uh, both high school and university in terms of eligibility? Oh, yeah, the eligibility is, um, I mean... Listen, if you don't go to class or you don't do the work, you don't play. I think you have to have a certain, we call it great GPA, grade point average um, in America. And um, you have to be above, an above average student to actually participate in sports. Uh, when you get to the university level, again, you have to be above average. And um, you just got to put in the work. I mean, you spend about five or six hours, maybe five hours a day on your athletics, but you spend a lot, you spend, I think, almost double that on your academics. A lot of kids don't understand that because they think, oh, I just got the scholarship, I'm going to school for free. No, you actually have to put in the work um, to be eligible. Um, I think the GPA in the U.S. for university, I think it's probably like a two five, which is above average. Um, People might say, oh, that's low, but, you know, universities are actually pretty difficult. 
you know, not only in America, but, you know, all over the world. Um, but, you know, kids put in the work. And, you know, a lot of these superstars you see these days, uh, Kevin Durant, all these guys, they put in the work in the classroom to be eligible to play in the university experience. So, you know, you know, nobody, there's no easy way to go about it. And coming back on the education point, what did you study at university? Um, my first year when I was at Georgetown, I was pre-med, uh, which was, it was, you know, I'm not going to say it was very difficult because, you know, I'm a kid that's always in the library. I lived in a library. You know, we had, our library was 24 hours. I literally was, I had a pillow there, a blanket, literally was living there, getting up, going to class the next day. Uh, but I, I wanted to, you know, I loved it because that's something my parents wanted me to do and I wanted to follow my father's footsteps. Uh, but my real passion was writing, and so I switched to my major to journalism, broadcast journalism, um, and I knew that would help me translate to my life after basketball, and ended up helping my life during basketball also, uh, but that was just my passion. I always wanted to be a writer. Um, I wanted to write novels. I wanted to you know, write movie scripts and things like that because I had a different type of imagination as a child, and I knew that could bring the best out of me. Okay, that's, that's quite interesting, obviously. Pre, pre, well, balancing <laughs> any degree and doing sport at the, t- at, at the same time is quite difficult. But when you said pre-med, I'm thinking, those, yeah. those, those, those things are difficult enough by themselves. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, it was, it was a lot, you know, but I'm, all, I'm always, a, I'm a true believer that you make time for whatever's important. You make time for people that are important and things that are important in your life. I played two sports and I was pre-med, biology, biochemistry. And, you know, with that, you got to go to labs. You got to do extra research. Uh, But, you know, I think 24 hours in a day is a lot, you know, when you categorize what you're doing within a day. Uh, But I had no problem with it. I just think for my life and what I wanted to do in my 30s, 40s, and 50s, 60s, I knew that writing will, will be what will make me happy, and I could do more things with that, and it, you know, it's just what, it's just what I believe in, to be honest with you, so I'm happy I took that route. And then it was, uh, we, I was discussing with a psychologist on a previous podcast, he was saying that athletes are in a good position to be able to balance their lives more so than other individuals because obviously we have to structure our day around obviously we know that we're gonna have to train x amount during the day so we have to we are kind of better at time time management in terms of uh getting things done so coming to my point on that did you find as an athlete that you were and and at university at the time, you were able to better time management your your time to get things done, be it uh, the hours in the library, uh, having to go to class, and then also you've got to set, the, well, I won't say set aside time to go to practice. You had set times <laughs> that you had to go to practice. Yeah. Did, did, did you find that you were, it helped you in the long run having to balance those two... Um, I want to say it, uh, two tasks at university. Yeah, I mean, of course. Um, as I get older now, 
I look back and my schedule, my structure I had when I was 18 or 19, and it's basically still the same thing. Like I have to carve out a certain time to write. I have a set schedule here for practice and training, but I also have a set schedule where I do work on my own as far as getting in the gym, going, getting extra shots up and things like that. It's the same thing we did when I was in college. Well, you guys call it university. Same exact thing. And I think that athletes, it actually helps you to structure your life even after basketball, because you're always on a schedule, you always have to put things that are important as a top priority. And then when you, you know, you have, you leave time for friends, family, you know, your teammates and things like that. And I just think it's a great system to have. I think a lot of athletes uh, need to figure, need to understand that the structure that you have when you're 18 or 19, as far as university and where you have to be, it's going to help you when 40, 50 when you're done with athletics. So, I mean, we really need to take, we, need, we really need to teach these kids that and take that into consideration. Well, to kind of go on to, more on from that point, it's probably a lot easier. They've got no excuse, the, the kids nowadays, because uh, you've got your smartphones, uh, your tablets, yeah. they've all got calendars on it. So, you're carrying around your calendar, so you've got no excuse to be able to time time manage now. Whereas, probably when we were younger, it'd be a case of uh, using an actual real-life calendar, and it would be somewhere in the house, and you'd have to memorize that. I remember walking around when I was in high school with a calendar in my bag and having to write things in there. Because those cell phones back back in those days didn't have you could set a reminder, like now you could set a reminder for a whole week and like it could just go off and you're like, oh, I got to do this, I got to do that. I literally, if I didn't have that calendar with me, I was screwed. Like, you know, because I had so many things going on. I had to be the class at this time. I had to be a practice at this time. I had a team meeting, film. I had to eat. Like, you know, <laughs> sometimes I forgot to eat. You know, that was my that was my big problem when I was 18, 19 years old. I would literally skip meals because I was always in the library studying something, and I would snack at like 11 when you know, I had to take like these um, Tupperwares of Nutri-Grain bars and sandwiches I used to have to make, because I would forget I had to eat. And, you know, playing a high-level sport and the level I played in, it takes a toll on your body, not only physically, but mentally. So mentally, you have to, you know, have to have your mind right. And then going on to the past, university now and using basketball as a career uh, where are some of the places that you've had the experience to play in um, I played played a lot of places I played in Macedonia France I've played in Egypt Libya and I've been here in uh, in England in the British Basketball League this is my fifth year um, I've also played in the US minor leagues um, but it's you know this has been a long journey to be honest with you. I played a lot of great places, um, but you know, I'm at a I'm at a point in my life, in my professional life now, where I'm actually happy with the way um, my career turned out. And I'm 32 years old now, but I'm still healthy. I still feel good. I still take care of my body. And I still play at a high level, you know, and I take a lot of pride in saying that because I put in a lot of work, a lot of work when I was younger, and I put in a lot of work now. And then listening to uh, a previous podcast that you did, you said uh, when you had 
your what was a misfortune or <laughs> misfortune? <laughs> uh, how would I put it in a non-PC way? Uh, you were talking about your your experience of playing in in Macedonia and the trials and tribulations what came with that. Can you explain to the listeners what some of those were? Uh, when I played in Macedonia, you know, I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea. You know, I believe that it's a great country. Eastern Europe is a great region of the world. Um, but my experience in the, in the city I was living in, which was Skopje, which was the main, which is the capital of the country. Um, I lived in a in a small part of that main city where it was filled with a lot of people who wouldn't see black people on a regular basis. You know, maybe on TV, like obviously on TV, and they hear the music. So it's like once I got there and they saw me, it was like, you know, I was like a like a walking billboard. You know, I'm this athlete with tattoos. You know, does he rap? You know, <laughs> does he sing? You know, is it like, you know what I mean? It's like the black people I see on TV. And that wasn't the case. I was just a I was just a, a athlete. I was a quiet kid. I was a kid who was there to do a job and I wanted to take a take an experience. And you know, I I was well. Obviously, I was welcomed by my team very well, but as far as the community, as far as the the road fans, they didn't welcome me and my other teammates that were African American. It wasn't a warm welcome. Um, it was a very stressful situation. Um, the league was great. I'm not gonna lie. The league and the competition, basketball was great. Things like that. But as far as being welcome as individuals, it was rough. It was really rough. It was a very hostile uh, work environment. And um, things got pretty bad. Like I said, they're not used to seeing black people a lot. So there were things that they were saying, racial slurs, that I wasn't and my teammates weren't comfortable with. And for you, for you to tell somebody to be there for nine months and mm. taking type of abuse, verbal abuse, something bad would have happened. And um, before that could have happened, I had to get up out of there. You know, that's basically what went down. And, and that's probably, as you attest to in the other podcast... That's kind of was it the final straw to make you want to leave and take other opportunities elsewhere? Yeah, yeah, that was the final straw. I knew that. I knew that. I knew for a fact that when I was eighteen years old, my goal in life was if I could play ten years professionally on any level, I would be happy. Like ten, if I could do ten, my goal was to do ten. Boom. If I go past that. You know, that's great. Uh, I just knew I wanted to be in a positive work environment. You know, the money's good. You know, you get a chance to do something that a million people would do for free, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if I wasn't playing professionally, I'd probably be playing in some gym back home. Comp- same type of competition, yelling, playing physical. But I get the, I get paid to do this, so I'm happy. But I need, my, my main goal was to be in a positive work environment. And once it wasn't positive... I had to go seek that somewhere elsewhere, whether it could be Asia, Africa, the U.S. And that was my main concern uh, because when I'm stressed out, I still can play well, but I get I get a little bit, it's a different type of basketball. You know, if I'm in a positive work environment, I would love getting up, going to work, going to the gym, looking at my teammates. When it's not like that, I might hear my alarm clock and just, just start going crazy, you know, and not, might not want to show up. So I just didn't want that for my life. So I had to find a positive work environment, and that's basically what I did. 
And then from that, how did the opportunity of going to play in Libya come about? Well, the situation in Libya came about my uh, my agent at the time. He actually was from Macedonia, so I had easy access to him. And I basically told him, called him one day, I said, I need to get out of here. And he understood the situation because the other my other teammates were trickling out. Everybody wanted to get out of there. And um, he told me, there's a team in Libya that knows you're available. They want you. They're going to pay you X amount of dollars. You know, it was a, it was a decent amount of money. He's like, you have an African passport, obviously, but you know it's a different type of country. It's quiet. Um, that's what actually what he said. He said it's quiet. The league is very physical, but I think you'll do well there. Said that you know the league was over in June. You know things like that. So I was like, anything, just get me out of here. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just get me out of here. So that's how that came about. So I got out of there in Macedonia. Literally, I think probably three days later. Signed my contract, and um, I was on the road to Libya. And you, you talked a little bit about it on that other podcast about um, friends and family raised concerns about you going. Yeah, yeah. Um, my parents, obviously, my brothers and sisters. You know, they always, they always do the research. You know, if, it, if it's not an English speaking country, they always going to do their research. And um, you know, some negative things came about, uh, but. Like I always said, in my childhood, when I was younger, living in Nigeria, there were always two positives, two positive influences, you could say, that, you know, were always in the media when it comes to African news. And uh, that was Nelson Mandela, and one was Muammar Gaddafi. You know, they both helped the nation uh, in in a positive way. You know, you could say, you know, there are negatives about Muammar Gaddafi. And you could say not too many bad things about Mandela, prison sentence, you know, things like that. But they were, those are the two positives I always saw when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So I really, and I was from Africa, so I really didn't have a problem going to play in Africa because I never knew there was a league in that part of the world. Um, so I took it upon myself to go. You know, I always love new experiences. To be honest with you, when I'm 50, I want to tell my kids and my grandkids about the great places I've been. So I took the opportunity. Um, uh, regardless of what my family said, I went anyway. Uh, <laughs> you know, I always have the last say. But uh, I, I was pretty much confident about the situation, so I went ahead and went. And you, you talked about, obviously, the journey from Macedonia to getting to Libya. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you explain to the listeners... How long that took? That was a tough process. Um, it, it took me a little while. I mean, the day I was supposed to leave Macedonia, it was literally two days back to back of, I think the airport was shut down. The airport was called Alexander, the great airport. It was shut down because of fog. So I was like, man, this is a sign. Like, you know, <laughs> like I should, should I be leaving or should I be going back home to America? Literally, like all flights were shut coming in, going out. So I basically had to get on a train to Greece. I had to go from Macedonia to Thessaloniki and Thessaloniki to Athens. Um, spend uh, Christmas uh, Eve and Christmas Day in Athens by myself in a hotel, just hanging out, watching movies, um, eating kebabs, you know, things like that. Just literally, the city, the city was shut down. I was just by myself. Um, 
left there the day after Christmas to fly to, had to fly to Jordan, Amman, Jordan. Um, went to Jordan, uh, had visa issues. So basically, couldn't be in, you know, they wanted me to be in the airport for two or three days while my visa was being worked on. So I basically was like, just take me to a hotel, anything close. And, you know, I was in, they ended up taking me to some rinky-dink shack. Like, it wasn't even a hotel. I mean, it was bad. So I, I was there, and then my visa finally came in through word of mouth through, I can't even say the concierge at the hotel. It was <laughs> concierge. Um, my visa came in, so I ended up flying from Amman, Jordan, to Benghazi, Libya. And I didn't really do my research at Benghazi. I did my research on Tripoli, which is a beautiful city, um, the capital, beautiful. I mean, just gorgeous. So I'm thinking it was going to be similar, you know, second biggest city in the country. I get to Benghazi, and it's just desert land, like literally desert. And I'm like, wow, like. It's like night and day, these two cities, you know. Um, but when I got there, you know, I kept it positive. I kept, I kept it positive. Um, you know, I was here to do a job. Um, I was here to be quiet, put my head down, do a job, and to win. And that was most important. So when I got there, that was my goal. Okay. And then you, you, you talked a little bit of uh, in the other one that your experience of when you actually got to Benghazi, you, you got a... A soldier came up to you. Yeah, yeah. When I get to when I got to Benghazi, I got off the plane and the soldier came up to me with this big gun. Like I'm like, man. But like we we were in line, and he just literally they were going from through the line looking at people's passports, and he just walked up to me and just like come here, kind of did his hands like that, and I was like, wow, what's going on here? And then he was like. He's like, are you a woman playing for NASA Benghazi? And I was like, yeah. And he just had this big smile on his face. And I was so relieved. Like, you know, I was getting this VIP treatment. You know what I mean? I was like, wow. I, you know, I thought for something bad was going to happen. But, you know, actually, it was like, he was like a fan. So he takes me takes me through customs, check my passport, takes me downstairs where all the fans are waiting for me from the team. You know, it was like, it was something literally out of a scene of a movie. Like, everybody's outside waiting for me, shaking my hand. You know these people bringing me sweets, and you know, um, but it was a, it was, it was actually a great welcome. Like it was probably the best welcome. I don't want to try to throw um, any of my other organizations out of the bus, but it was actually like the warmest welcome I've ever seen in my life. You know, more than over 30, 40 people out there greeting me, shaking my hand, giving me, you know, throwing the team's scarves and hats on me. But it was great. And then something you touched upon in that other podcast in terms of uh, the working environment you went into, it wasn't something that you were expecting. No, no. Um, well, <laughs> the environment was very different. Um, you know, the city was, like I said, it was a great city. I don't have, you know, nothing bad to say about it, but I'm, I was just used to a certain, I was, I was used to a certain look. Of a, of a city, if I'm going to stay, you know, the street I would stay on, you know, would be paved, there wouldn't be trash out there. So when I went through the city, uh, it was, you know, I was like, kind of had my concerns, like, you know, where, where was I going to live? Um, but I pulled up to my street and it looked a, really, it looked a little rugged. I was kind of concerned. Um, but by the time I got upstairs and got to my flat, I was, um, I was actually happy. I was like, wow, like, 
it was probably the best place I've ever stayed in, in my life, you know. Like, it was like a, a situation where I wouldn't never want to leave as far as, like, I could be in there all day hanging out, watching TV, you know. It was just a nice place, but, um, you know, I had my doubts, but when I, once I got there, I was good. Okay. And then for, for, the, for the listeners, yeah. uh, can you explain a little bit more uh, about the team and who it was actually run by? Yeah, the team was run by um, well, the, the infamous dictator Muammar Gaddafi. Um, this was like, you know, been, when he took over from the king and uh, became this great dictator, he he overthrew him in Benghazi, which was his home city. And Nasser was like the Nasser club was like his his club, and he wore they wore the country's colors. We were we were green. Everything was green, you know. We had the biggest budget. We had the best coaches. They brought in coaches from Europe, from Egypt. The best coaches. We had the best facilities. And um, the reason why I was brought in because they weren't winning. Like you know, the year before I think they won the championship, but recently they had lost three straight games in a row, and it was just a bad situation for them. So they brought me in, and then I found out the team was run by the family. And then that's when it started to click about my living situation, the amount of money they were paying people, um, the pressure they were under. But um, they, the family, they were pretty hands-on with the team. Like, you know, the son, one of the one of his sons would show up to our game when we played in the Capitol. Uh, I was living in one of his sons, one of his many houses. I think he had 30 houses. Like, you know, the family was so rich. I was living in one of his hideaway flats within the city um, but it was a good situation but it put a lot of pressure on me when I figured it out though I'm not going to lie to you I was a little nervous because you know what if we didn't win what if we lost another three games in a row what would happen um, but you know it was a challenge I was up for and then in terms of you say the the, the pressures of um, going on losing streaks uh, it's, it's probably Something you'd attest to that it's a it was a to, it's a totally different world to what you were used to in terms of the other organizations and what um, how would I say this uh, kind of situations the 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 management put you in which we well in the west in the in the western world we would probably have problems with yeah I mean. It was just, I've never had that much pressure on my back, you know, for, it's like a win right away situation. And then the league, the league I play now, the British Basketball League, you're allowed a certain number of imports. So I'm not going to say you don't want all the pressure to be on you, but, you know, if you have a not so good game, somebody else will pick up the slack. Whereas when I was in Libya, you, every game you had had to be good. There was no time. Like, you couldn't have a bad game. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was something that I was thinking about also. Like, because, you know, sometimes you have off days. Like, it happens. Not only in sport, but in life, you have an off day. Um, but there was just no room for error. And um, and the pressure really, it really taught me a lot about myself, to be honest with you. Um, it taught me that no matter what situation I'm in, I can handle it. You know, and I'm and I'm pretty grateful for that situation. And then, as we progress through this podcast, 
it's entirely up to you because it's personal to you, the story. Um, <laughs> you you were in Benghazi at the same time as the Arab Spring was kicking off. So if you could talk about some of the trial and tribulations that you went through, uh, obviously go into as much detail as you feel comfortable to do. Well, you know that Arab Spring, I look at it as probably one of the most important revolution in my, in my generation. Um, I think it was a revolution of the people, which was, you know, which is uh, good to say, but am I happy that I went through that? Or what, I, uh, what happened to me? I'm not going to say I was. Um, was it, was I put through that test by God? And I said, yes. And the reason why I say this is because, you know, I went through a lot of stuff and I learned a lot about myself. Um, seeing people murdered in front of my own eyes, you know, as a kid growing up, raised by a great family, you and you would never think that things like that happen in those parts of the world. You, you know, you take for granted how good you have it till you've seen something like that. Um, but the most the most important thing that I always take from the story and I always want people to understand was that I seen families destroyed within five, ten seconds. Just that quick. And a lot of hurt and a lot of pain not only for me, but the people that were surrounding me in that part of the world is what I had to take into consideration. Yeah, I had a bad year. I went almost 16, 17 days with limited food, water. At some points, I doubted if I wanted to survive, if I wanted to live. You know, I was born, raised, you know, in the church. I doubted God probably a thousand times within two in a two week period. Like, you know, how could you let this happen to me? How could you bring me to this part of the world? Not knowing that my whole life he was preparing me for that moment. You know, and I didn't really figure it out until a year later. When I was a child, all the the nasty things that happened in my childhood, all the beatings my brothers gave me, it you know it kind of built me up for literally the Arab Spring. And um, it was a lot of stuff. It was a lot of stuff. Like I said, seeing people murdered, seeing families destroyed, seeing some of your teammates pass, you know, hearing some of your teammates die because they wanted to go fight in the war. Guys that you had dinner with every night or you laughed with or you held their sons in, the, in, you know, in your arms. It was, it was just... You know, my heart just couldn't take none of it. Like, you know, and like I said, I doubt it if I want to live at times. But, you know, there was only one thing I could do, you know. After all was over and after, even when it was getting worse, I just prayed. It was getting, day by day, it was getting worse. It was getting worse. I didn't see any light at the end of the tunnel, but I just stayed prayed up. Um, but it was very, it Emotional is an understatement, to be honest with you, because till to, to this day, you know, people always say, oh, um, you should be fine now, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, it's over. No, it's, it's never over. That Those things will never leave me. That's why I do 
podcasts. Or that's why I speak at universities and schools or at academies because it's therapeutic for me. You know, people, you know, the way I live my life now, I strategically have always surround myself with people that you know will bring positivity to my life. I'm not saying that I'm using them for that. But I know how to gravitate towards positivity. And they know that I need it. You know, so it kind of makes it easy for me to accept my life now. Whereas before I was in the now. Like, oh, I'm going to be better in a week. You know, I could go back to my regular life. And when I started doing that, I was I was even getting more and more screwed up in my head. And I was literally sinking, sinking every day, sinking every day. So I had to figure out, I had to literally get help. And I had to accept the fact that, listen, this is what your life is going to be. Those memories will never leave you. You just, you just have to learn how to control them and just take it a day at a time. Um, but the trials and tribulations, like I said, it was it was horrible. It was horror. Hard, you know, that's the only way I could describe it. Um, you know, I just, like I said, I wish it never happened. You know, if there was another route I could take. I would have, but I know that I went through that because I think God picked me for that. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy to do that because, you know, you never know what they would try to do, try to literally probably go through with taking their own life. You know, I was on almost there, you know, and I stayed strong and something just told me I was here for, I was on this earth for a certain reason. And I think he picked me for that. Like, out of all these people in the world, he said, listen, it's going to be you. Get, you know, <laughs> it's gonna be you. Sorry, but this is the this is the hand that you dealt. You got to figure it out. And uh, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for. I'm grateful to still be here. I'm grateful that I could use my story as a testimony. And it's something you you, you attested to on uh, another podcast. How bad did it get at certain stages over that that two week period? Well, it was bad. It was bad. Um, man, I mean, it was the one thing that I always remember that I will, I take for granted. You know, I thought I take, I don't take for granted now is the lack of sleep I got, the lack of rest. I mean, I literally was up at one point for like forty-eight hours, and like every time I attempted to go to sleep or close my eyes, I could hear a boom or some machine gun going off outside. And it's like every little movement, no matter if somebody just yelled outside, I was just get shaken up. Like I was like scared. Uh, but it really got bad because, you know, I, I was, at a certain point I had no food, no water, so I had to improvise. You know, the um, electricity was off. The plumbing was off. Um, no internet, no way for me to contact the outside world. Um, I was literally, you know, drinking from the toilet, you know, rationing the water from the toilet. You know, and I'm a guy who, you know, had it, you know, was raised right, had a good life, and for me to resort to this was kind of crazy. But I had to improvise, you know. But it, I was down in the dumps. I was down in the dumps. It's probably the worst thing a human being could probably go through and still be alive to tell it. Um, but, you know, like I said, you know, I think I was, I, you know, I guess God felt like I was the perfect person to go through with it. 
Um, but, you know, those are some really bad times, some really bad times. I was looking at looking at my window, seeing buildings go down, seeing buildings bombed, seeing people drag their bodies, you know, wives drag their husbands from the street, um, blood everywhere in the road. It was just bad. It was bad. Um, but, you know, it's something that I have to talk about. You know, I can, you know, like I said, I can't escape it. People will ask questions and people want to know. Uh, but, you know, I went through it, so the next next man or the next group of people don't have to go through it. And you, and you, and you say, well, early on in the other podcast that you, you, you thought it wasn't going to last as long as it ended up being. No, and I did And you kind of helped other people within your block. So you gave your last bit of food away because you thought oh, it was, it's only going to last two, three days. Yeah. And um, what was kind of some of the things you used psychologically to keep yourself from obviously um, going in that from going in that down, downward spiral? Um, you know, I'm not gonna say I wasn't going in downward spiral. I was heading to the I was heading for the worst. Um, like I said, I you know I I doubted my faith in God all the time. But it's funny that I always continued to pray because that was just what I was taught as a kid. Like I was raised in church, pray no matter what you get out of it. And it was like I was fighting a battle. You know, like one of those old cartoons where you have that, you know, angel hair, the devil hair. That's basically what I was dealing with. You know, let me pray. Let me, you know, denounce his name and things like that. Um, but that's the only way I could think about it was for me to pray and, you know, just memories of my family, to be honest with you. Like, I didn't want my mother burying me, you know, having to, you know, you know, try to locate her son, you know, on the other side of the world. My, you know, my, my nieces, my brothers, my sisters, I come from a huge family where family is all we have. Um, I just know what type of stress it to put on my, my, my parents, man, and my family. You know, that, you know, they kind of helped me and they supported my dream um, as far as being a professional athlete. And basketball, this, you know, this round thing, this round basketball piece of love that took me so far in life. And for, for it to leave me there and them not seeing me ever again, I think that would have been devastating to them, you know, but... You know, like I said, prayer was the only thing that could help me. You know, even if I didn't make it out, I knew I still would question God and I knew he would give me some answers somehow. You know, just talking to him, asking him why things happen, um, why this has happened to me. But I feel like it's a struggle that we still, a lot of millions of people go through this day, you know, with, with God and religion. Um, but, you know, I have no regrets about the situation. And looking at back now, do you kind of sh- think that it shaped you into a better person? Yeah, I mean, it shaped my life where, you know, I I move strategically and I have to put a lot of my time into bettering myself and bettering other people. Um, like I said, you know, I... When it happened, I was only 26 at the time. I was young. I was a kid, you know. But the way I lived my life before that, you know, I wasn't like a reckless 
child. Like, you know, I wasn't, you know, you say my name in my city or any other city and people will have nothing but nice things to say about me. But I know that after all of this happened, in order for me to remain the same way, I had to focus on myself. Um, and it wasn't just going to be like a one week, two week therapy period. Like I had to literally work on myself, be alone. I had to learn how to live like a normal person. Um, you know, just the way I was talk, the way I talked to people wasn't the same way. When I came back home after everything happened, my friends didn't recognize the type of person I was. And that hurt me. You know, it really hurt me because they thought, you know, I was, you know, basically I was dead on the inside, but I was still, you know, I was still breathing. And um, it kind of hit me like, you know, I really need to work on myself. And it's, it's not going to be an easy process. You know, it's still to this day, I still have to work on myself. I still have to get up. I still have to read my Bible. I still have to talk to my parents. I still have to seek therapy. And I'm fine with that, to be honest with you. I have no problem with that. Like I said, that, you know, as an athlete, I have to structure my day and what's more important. And I think me bettering myself and trying to be a better person is at the top of the list. Well, that's definitely a good point for anybody to take. It's You've gone through that difficult situation in Libya and it's shaped you into the person you are now. But as you, as you attest to, everybody should always use that form of uh, personal development to make themselves a better person be that uh, improving the sport yeah um, being a better wife husband exactly. um, we'll switch on to the kids uh, taking <laughs> more onus more onus on uh, doing things in life um, obviously with this generation now Technology is a massive component and facet Huge. of their lives. Huge. Go, 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 go out, go out as the like younger kids. Go outside and experience what you and me can attest to. to exactly. Play outside. The being on and all is uh, not what's in front of you on a computer screen. Yeah. Uh, and say that's you've got somebody as a friend in some part of the world that you've never heard of. Go go outside and enjoy and enjoy life, obviously. Um kinda kinda you use that time when you're young and uh go out and try things when when, when you've got and then obviously to kind of come to my point with that so you have no regrets in later life as to why, why, what I wish I'd done this. I wish I'd done that. Exactly, if you yeah. go out and do it, you can look back at your life later on. I've done everything that I wanted to in life. I've done as well right. as I could have. And you can be uh, happy that you've accomplished what you set out to. Whereas yes, you don't right. want to come to that point in life and say, oh, I wish I'd done that. I wish I'd, visited such and such um, and you kind of have that regret and you by that stage in life there's nothing you can do about it yeah no you're right you're right you're right that's the absolute truth um, I, that's the way I live my life to be honest with you um, I like the hand I was dealt you know at one point in my life when I was going through this I was mad about the hand I was dealt you know I had no choice but to but now as I look back I'm happy 
the the route I took. I'm happy that God put me here with the with the parents that brought me into this world, the brothers and sisters that He surrounded me with. Um, but you know, I, I have a great profession. I have great people around me. I live a good life. I live a very good life. I mean, I, you know, I'm not the richest person in the world. You know, I'm not Bill Gates. I'm not LeBron James. I'm not you know Mo Farah. I'm not none of these people. But I live a very good life. You know, I have a lot of love around me, a lot of love, and you can't buy that. I'm, you know, so I'm happy. But it's something you'd attest to that the the only difference between you and the free people is probably money. But at the epicenter of all that, which makes all four of you have some similar goals, is obviously you have a passion for whatever that that you do and that's why you took upon it yourself to do it yeah that which is you know which is what a lot of athletes in my position don't understand just because you're not making the 10 to 15 million dollars a year or the high level they say oh my life is not as good my career is not as good we all have the same passion we all get up and we put in the same amount of hours it's just they were dealt a different hand. How are you gonna play the hand that you, the cards that you dealt? You can actually fold them, or you could use them the best way they can work for you. And that's exactly what I did. And that's what a lot of people need to understand. Everybody could do the same thing. If you want to be whatever you want to be, you get dealt a certain hand, and you got to prepare your life, prepare yourself, do the research, study, do the work. You got to put in the work. Well, something you'd you'd probably attest to. It's from an athlete perspective. If you, well, it's coming back to the root form of the sport. Mm-hmm. Why did you get into it? You obviously enjoy it. You like this. You love. You you've got a love for the game, and the w- one thing that you could probably take from it is when it gets up to that certain point in time where you don't enjoy it. Uh, you don't like to get up and do the training. That's the time <laughs> where you say enough is enough and I need to retire. But yeah. until that point, you kind of got to remember what it was like to be a kid because it's questions I get asked is why do you, why do you do, why did you sport and why did you want to get to that certain level? Well, it's I. To kind of put it in simple terms, obviously, the ones that uh, get to a higher level have obviously got, have worked on that skill set, have the talent to mm-hmm. be able to progress, but they haven't lost what the emphasis of sport is, is, exactly. is, they, is that enjoyment. And as long yeah. as you have that, uh, how would I put it, um, sense of enjoying what you do. Mm-hmm. You will carry on, you'll carry on doing that, and then, like I said, until you reach that certain point where you don't want to do it anymore, it it only come to that point is when you say, I I need to call time on this part of my life and move on to that next chapter in life, whatever that may be. Obviously, it's probably. Uh, a good one, obviously, with the scholarship system the Americans have, you use your sport to progress your education, 
and to be able to get something that in the long run will be your future career. Whereas I think um, uh, I think it's probably a big one in the UK, obviously with the sporting academies, they're brought in oof, how, as young as four or five years old and the lucky ones, that's all they do for throughout their career. Yeah. And as a psychologist would put it, that's their that's their identity. They're known as a professional athlete, whereas they can kind of go off the rails when they finish because oh this is a this is all I've ever known. What do I do now? Whereas a a person that has gone on to use their sport and been able to improve themselves uh, on a personal on a personal level, be that um, further education or some kind of way in which they've got an outlook on life as to uh, obviously they look at it from a bigger picture in terms of okay uh, I could get hypothetically an injury tomorrow and my athletic career is finished so what do I do to look after myself in the long run to have something as a backup if that situation happened to arise in in the short term period or what would I like to do in the long run like you say with journalism that's a passion you have you've mm-hmm. kind of got something to look forward to well in the short, short term you do it now you'll, yeah. you'll use it as time to probably a form of relaxation it's your time away from, from the sport to kind of uh, as I would put it um, a form of distraction, but it, it kind of allows you to wind down and kind of put basketball to one side and not be um, as those ones that are involved in sport and that's all they know. They're kind of 100% of the time, oh, this, 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 I'm focused on this 24 hours a day and okay, in, in the long run, that's not good for you psychologically because you, you're going to become obsessed with the things and obviously that's going to impact on other facets of your your being. So you're going to have problems with relationships, with be it possibly with your family, girlfriends, wives, because yeah. you're stuck in that mindset of probably being very, very... Well, athletes are very self-centered and quite narrow-minded at the best of times it's probably one of those you could probably look at it from a positive and a negative way positive that's probably how they become so successful down the line because they're so focused and driven on oh I want to do this 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 to get me to there but then on the negative side of it uh, they kind of put other stresses on their family because uh, be it or to pr- progress for, through basketball for example is not a is not a cheap sport to do because obviously uh, in America you've got obviously um, your YMCA teams uh, 
AAU, and obviously as you progress, and then obviously the other commitments as you progress through your school, obviously high school, it becomes a little bit of a chore to to a certain extent for the parents, and obviously with that time management issue, you you've got all all these teams that you're a member of, so you could be. Uh, say for example, maybe playing Friday night, Saturday and Sunday, and then have to go back to school and start it all over again. So it's that element of um, teaching teaching people. You've got to be very wise with your time. Yeah. And not. I think I think where the from a psychological perspective. The ones that do better have got something. They've got kind of either two strings to their bow in terms of they've got that education to fall back on. But then it's kind of a reprieve from from the sport in a, in an essence that if you have a bad game, or oh, kind of forget this for a few hours and and focus on uh, coursework to and because this needs to be done. And it kind of enables you to kind of wind wind down from that situation and say, "Well, okay, I've had a bad game here. It's not the end of the world in the grander scheme of things." And looking to learn learn from it, but kind of this needs to be done, and it you kind of shift the focus, as I would say to that and I'll look at that in team meetings as to what particularly went went wrong in that game instead of dwelling on it which would be the case yeah. if somebody's only focused on that which would obviously could go well it's only it's only a negative spiral because you're going to look at it from uh, you'll dwell on it too much well I did this. It was the wrong decision. So you'll you'll change your game entirely to suit what you did wrong, as opposed to kind of putting it to one side and focusing on something else, and then looking back on it and looking at it from a more critical way of thinking and being a little bit more reflective and saying, "Well, I did this. I could have done that, but those are what ifs." And not dwelling on the fact that that moment in time that you did something wrong is going to impact majorly on the outcome of the game. It's little facets sure. throughout the game. It won't solely be you as to why. You, well, you look at it both ways. Either what you won a game or you lost the game is solely on you. Obviously, at that particular moment, you're going to not be happy with yourself because. Obviously, with any competitive person, you don't like losing, be it in sport, in life, and it's 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 uh, it's one of it's one of those, and it's to kind of say it was probably would that be something that you would uh, agree with? Yeah. Now, no, you make you know you make a good point. You make a good point. I mean, I think our athletes agree with it. Um, I think. Not not a lot of people understand it because I'm not going to say they don't want to put in the work. I just think that only a special 
group of people could understand it. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So you have to be a special, like you have to have a different type of mindset to be able to grasp that. But I think, you know, I think it's something that needs to be talked about a lot more, you know, so I understand you. So I think we'll wrap it there, wrap it up there, Alex. So thanks once again for coming on the show. No problem, no problem. I want to mention also that I have a new book out called The Fire Raven. came out a couple of weeks ago. It's a fiction, and I think um, I think people will love it. Uh, it's a, it's a, uh, the main character is a female. She's a female assassin, but it's catered more around um, my time in England. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's a fiction, but... You know, there are a lot of things that I've taken from my five years here that are within the story. And it's actually getting received very well um, from a lot of people, a lot of British Basketball League fans and, you know, just people in general. So um, I just wanted to highlight that also. Okay. And then to my final point would be, if anybody wanted to get in touch with you via social media to ask you possibly a question about your new book or the... Gaddafi's point guard, what mm-hmm. would be the best way for them to get in touch with you? Um, that's easy. You can find me on Twitter at Alex Awumi, um, A-L-E-X-O-W-U-M-I. The same thing for uh, Instagram and the same thing for Facebook. Uh, everything is just my name, my first and last name. So that's pretty easy. And um, I love when people hit me up on social media because I'm very personal. I love to answer people's questions. I just, you know, I take pride in the fact that well, you know, the people that support me, who people I focus on um, basically all the time, and I'd like to have a good relationship with them. Um, you know, tell me what you didn't like about the book, what you did like, um, you know, just talk. You know, I literally spend half my day multitasking. I'm always on my phone talking to people personally. Um, you know, people always refer other people to my work and they always contact me and I just like to be personal with the people that support me and my fans so make sure you contact me on any one of my social medias and I I respond it's not somebody else responding for me it's me (laughs) so once again thanks for coming on the show thank you James I appreciate it if you wanted some bonus content I have now set up a Facebook group where you can interact with both the guests and I the name of this so-called group is Mindset Game So why not come over and check it out for yourself? And before I forget, I would really appreciate it if you would be so kind as to leave a short review as it helps to get the podcast more notoriety and it will be more visible in future to others and thus helping more people, which my guests and I are all about. Once again, thanks for listening and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast. Oh, my God.